the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, I am lost. Precious Lord, and lead me home.
gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. It's awesome news. But you cannot combine the wonderful news of Jesus' kingdom with a normal life in America. They won't mix. If you try to mix them, you dilute the kingdom of Jesus and make it of non-effect with no power. You make it a sham. And you continue to walk in the power of the dark kingdom. And the result is you're a social Christian. You're not really a Christian. When the kingdom of God comes to a person, it sets them free. It releases the bondage. It removes every oppression. It sets us free to serve Jesus. When you meet religion, you can make all kinds of decisions about, okay, I like that, I don't like this. When you meet Jesus, I mean, when you meet the person, Jesus, everything changes in your heart and your life. And if everything didn't change when you became a Christian, you've never met Jesus yet. And we've come to this broadcast day after day because we want you to meet the man, the person, God. We want you to meet Jesus. And we want there to be a radical transformation in your life, in your value system, in where you go and where you don't go, what you watch and don't watch. A radical change in how you use your spare time. A radical change in what you do at work. See, Jesus came to set a man or a woman free. To break the chains of discouragement. To break the chains of of the world. He puts in your heart a joy and a peace. He puts in your heart life. Life unimaginable. So we come with good news today. We're going to share some stories again during this time. We're going to share stories. Why, Pastor? Why aren't you just teaching straight scripture? Well, because Jesus came telling stories. Stories about people being set free. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. And we want you to make significant progress today by absolutely letting Jesus come into your life and change you and set you aflame with love for Jesus and for everyone around you to make of you a disciple. Not just a follower, a disciple. I'm Ray Greenley. I'm from the National Prayer Chapel, and with me in studio is my sweetheart, my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to share with you as we open Luke, the 14th chapter, I'll begin reading in verse 23. The master told his servant, go out 
to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you that not one of those men who were invited but did not come will get a taste of my banquet. Our purpose today is that you would sit down at the banquet table of Jesus, that you would be filled. He says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, that is, if he is not indifferent compared to his love for Jesus and his mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What is the cross we're to carry? Any thoughts about that, Alexander? Yes. It's a little hard without the context, but if we look at the context of this and other passages where taking up the cross is mentioned, it's always mentioned connected to whether or not you will deny Jesus in the face of pressure from your family members, from rulers, people in authority, your boss. And so Jesus said that if we're faithful to, if we will testify of him, then he'll testify of us before the Father. But if we deny him, then he'll deny us before the Father. So what this looks like practically, for example, let's say that you're the only Christian in your family and everyone else in your family is a Muslim. Well, it would be denying Jesus to not tell them that you're a Christian and to just go with them to the mosque and do the prayers fast during Ramadan just to keep the peace. Now, likewise, if there's people in your family who are just not believing in anything, let's say they come visit you and you normally would go to church on Sunday, but you say, well, I don't want to stick out with my family. I don't want to offend them by going to church, so I'll just skip church today. They don't even have to know that I normally go to church. Those are examples where we're choosing to love another person over loving Jesus. Jesus is everything, and so the cross being spoken of here, as you've said, Alexandra, is not a sickness or a lack of money, or being persecuted at work, unless it's for the name of Jesus. The cross specifically, as you've said in my understanding, is that I choose to put Jesus first in everything. He goes on, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build, was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not sit first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and offer terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying there is a radical change in your life when you come to Jesus. And so if you think you can hang with the world and hang with Jesus too, wrong. This is an all-out, I'm for you, Jesus. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks or what anybody says. We walk into the love and the freedom and the joy that comes from being one with Jesus. And so we're going to share with you today some stories out of Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. We're going to share some stories of people who had to make that decision and what happened in their life when they did. And please, this is not just a story. This is your story. You've either laid everything down for Jesus. Football, NASCAR. You've laid down the sports. You've laid down the television. You've laid down all of the wickedness and the entertainment of this world, or you have not. Jesus is everything, but he also costs everything. We'll be sharing from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger, and what you'll see in these stories, these were written about uh, young men and women in Hong Kong. Jackie Pullinger has been a missionary there for over 50 years, and she's still there. And what you'll see in the story, another sense in which we take up our cross, is that when we become Christians, we're making a commitment to do what is right, even if that means we suffer for doing what is right. And what you'll see as we go through the story today is these new Christians, many of them criminals, have to actually tell the truth in court. They were not in the habit of at all telling the truth. But Jackie said, you're a Christian now, and as a Christian, you have to tell the truth in court. So Jackie writes, It was dark in the walled city that night. Only the lights of our little room blazed out bravely in the sultry gloom. Four or five boys lounged around watching a table tennis game. Into the light slipped a pathetic figure, very young and very thin, and clearly addicted to heroin. I recognized Bibi, Winston's youngest brother, who was called Bibi because he was the baby of the family. He was on the run from the police. They'd let him out for one day's holiday from prison, and he had not gone back. I called Bibi, sat him on a wooden bench away from the table tennis, and told him about Jesus. He seemed to begin to understand, but he didn't stay for more than half an hour. Boys on the run can never stay long in any place. He promised to come back again, and some days later, it may have been weeks, he did come back. I told him more so that he knew enough to make the decision to follow Jesus if he so chose. I warned him that now he had to make up his mind for himself. I can't go on seeing you, because I'll be breaking the law if I encourage you to visit me here, I said. If I don't know where you live, that's one thing. But if I'm regularly seeing you here... I'll be obliged to turn you in. I'll pray for you, and as soon as you're ready to follow Jesus, tell me, 
and I will go with you to the police station and help you give yourself up. I will go through the whole thing with you, because if you really start to pray, I know you can be helped. So for Bibi, part of the cross that he faced in becoming a Christian was he had to actually turn himself in for his crimes. Well, Bibi did not turn himself in. Later, he was arrested and sent back to prison. I went to see him there and we talked, but on his release, he went back to drugs. For the next few months, he dropped into the youth club occasionally, and then I heard he'd been arrested for two very serious crimes. One charge was for wounding a newspaper seller and stealing his watch. The second charge was for robbery with assault. The police claimed that they'd found identity cards and property from the victims on Bibi when they arrested him. As soon as I heard the details, I knew that Bibi could not be guilty of at least one of the charges. He was in the youth club talking to me at the time that he was supposed to have been robbing the newspaper seller. I hurried to see him in prison and discovered to my horror that he wanted to plead guilty, because although he was innocent of these particular charges, he'd done about 20 other robberies in a completely different area of Kowloon. He said in a resigned tone, Let's just get it over with and plead guilty. You can't, I insisted. You really can't. It isn't the truth. Tell the judge you've done the other things, but tell the truth. When the case came up, Bibi pleaded innocent, but was found guilty in spite of my evidence, which was the only time that I've ever been a witness. In his summary, the judge said that he believed I'd spoken the truth, but he thought that another witness was confused about the time of the incident and the case was closed. I had spent days in court, praying throughout the proceedings, so inevitably the policemen and the prison officers got to know me. At the end of the trial, I was walking out of the courtroom when the police inspector stopped me. "'How come you're involved in all this?' he asked. "'Well, I'm a Christian.' <laughs> "'Why are you giving evidence for the criminal, then?' pressed the officer. "'I know he's a criminal.' I know he is a drug addict, I know he's done many robberies, but he did not do this one. I know he didn't, because I'm his alibi. Oh, said the policeman, well, I'm a Christian too. Look at it my way. When these people commit crimes, we know who did it, but we can't always get them for it. So we charge them with what we can make stick. It's rough but fair, and society benefits. You may think it's fair enough to arrest someone on the wrong charge, and he may even think it's fair enough because of what he's gotten away with, but in the long term, the effect on society is bad. There's no respect for the law, or the police, or for the truth. The criminal learns to think the way all criminals think, that getting caught is not connected with guilt or innocence, it's just bad luck. They certainly never learn to tell the difference between right and wrong. I felt very strongly about this, and I launched into the attack. Well, at least they received some kind of punishment for their crimes, reasoned the inspector. But they don't feel they're paying for the wrong that they've done, I countered. I know men in prison for crimes they claim they've not committed. They're viciously bitter at being locked up on a false charge. The first thing that they want to do when they get out is to commit the crime that fit the punishment. Never mind the other ones they did before. They feel that having already served time, they are owed the crime. Surprised at my tirade, 
The officer ended the conversation lamely. I've never thought of it like that. And he hurried away. I met B.B. when he came out of prison again. He looked like a rat that never saw the sunlight. His face was a mauve gray, and he had dark shadows under his eyes. He went straight back to his drug. He'd promised to change, but like most addicts, he was powerless. He had a celebration meal of heroin on the day of his release, although he did not plan it that way. Addicts have a favorite saying that describes their feeling on arriving in a drug den. My heart had not decided where to go, but my feet walked themselves. To pay for his habit, B.B. found a job as a garbage collector in the walled city. He had to drag large baskets slopping with excrement through the streets. It was the lowest form of work, but it gave him a little money to begin buying his heroin. To supplement his earnings, he went back to robbing people as well. Whenever he saw me, he ran away. But I kept in touch by getting things on the grapevine and by walking around the streets, and I usually knew where he was living. When a television film unit came to make a film of our work, we contacted B.B. and filmed him at home. The drug had eaten into his flesh and sharp-etched his bones. He shivered continuously. His family turned it into a soap opera. His mother sobbed, "'Make my son good, Miss Poon. Make him good. Take him into your house and make him good.' His elder brother whined in chorus, "'Make him good, Miss Poon. Make him good.' It could not work like that, of course. Bibi knew the truth, that he alone had to make the decision to change, and that no one else could make it for him. I learned that there is a time for meeting and talking, and then ultimately a time for not meeting any more. For Bibi, that time had come, so I told him that we'd reached the end. This is the last time I'm coming to see you. From now on, I am not going to visit you anymore, because you know the way to Jesus. It's up to you now. You can choose if you want to follow him or not. You know about him, and you know I care about you. It's because I care about you that I don't want to see you again. I don't want to see you in the state anymore. When you're ready to change, this time you must look for me. A week later, B.B. came. I'm ready now, he said. I've had enough. Let's stop just a moment. You understand the principle that's being spoken of here. How long has Jesus been calling after your heart? How long has he been trying to convict you to turn you from the way of darkness? How long has he been calling you to follow him? And I know some of you listening today are not following closely after Jesus. How long will you take to decide? Because at some point, Jesus is going to say, as Miss Poon did, Okay, I'm not going to call you again. You have to decide. Do you want to follow me or do you not want to follow me? And if you choose not to follow him, you can continue to be very religious. You can still continue even to attend church. You might even continue paying tithe. But your heart is empty. There's no joy in your life. 
there's not an excitement about Jesus. Instead, you're caught. You're in bondage. What we're saying to you this week, and we've been saying it for some time, is that Jesus is willing to break the bondage that binds you, whether it's financial, emotional, uh, addiction, whatever the bondage is that has captured your life, sickness, depression, bad relationships, sour relationships, loneliness, whatever it is, if you'll go to Jesus, he'll meet you. But you have to be ready. This young man is now saying, okay, I've had enough. I'm ready. Watch what happens. I'm ready now, he said. I've had enough. There's no way I can get off drugs by myself. My family despises me. I can't stay at home because I've got to sell drugs to buy my own. I also have to be involved in gambling dens because I need the money. Please help me. We prayed together for a long time. Bibi was filled with the Spirit and began to speak in a new language. Then he looked at me and stated, You've got to take me into your house. He meant that he wanted to be admitted to third house. I took a deep breath and said, I'm very sorry, but there's no room. Bibi was frantic and very angry. For him, the chance to get into one of the houses of Stephen was his only escape left. He shouted, But you have to let me go there. Now I'm going to follow Jesus, and you can't expect me to live on the streets. I'll go on taking heroin there, and you can't be a Christian and go on taking heroin. He was right, of course. So I pleaded for him with the Willenses and the workers in third house, but they turned me down. We can't take him into the house because the house is not in good order, said Sarah. You just have to, I argued. That's the whole reason why we have houses. They're there so we can take care of the boys who come to Christ, so that they can grow up into a new life. Now you won't let me bring in boys because you want a nice, tidy house. Sarah replied firmly, It's not helpful to anyone at all to bring a boy into a house like this, if the relationships are not solid enough to support him. He must wait until the boys we already have settle down. Let's stop there a moment. Again, there's a very basic principle. If the relationships in the church are not right, it's useless to bring a new believer into that church because there won't be the loving support necessary putting the arms around this new person to bring them up in Jesus. I see this in the church today, and it breaks my heart. And I would just add here, if you have been, in response to this broadcast, if you have been reaching out and you're finding that people are coming to Jesus, but you recognize that your church is not a good place for them for whatever reason. Maybe they will be looked down on. Maybe they'll just be ignored. This is a flexible thing here, so you should pray about it and see if perhaps you should start having meetings of your own 
or inviting certain Christians who you're close with who will care for those new converts to join you in those kinds of meetings. Don't feel like it has to be done a certain way, but feel free to follow the leading of the Spirit in this question. And honestly, we have invited people to come and follow Jesus in the past, and they have come, but there was no love and support to put their arms around him to care enough. The greatest thing lacking today in the church is righteousness, innocence. Righteousness and innocence that are bathed in true, honest, sacrificial love. It's not sentimental love we're talking about. It's love that causes us to lay our lives down for another person who is willing to waste time, quote-unquote, with them, to care for them, to meet their needs. This morning, Alexandra went off to work out at a club where she enjoys exercising, but she couldn't go alone. She had to take a person with her on a special pass, because this person right now needs Alexandra's love and attention because she's right there in between and she will soon make a decision about Jesus and part of that decision will be based on Alexandra's love for her and laying down her life for her. This work of the gospel is not it's not, how do I describe it? It's not sanitized. It gets dirty. You get dirty. Going down in the muck and the mire and helping to draw another soul up out of that. The scriptures say, hating even the clothing touched by this but you go where the person is and you love them because Jesus first loved you. Do you understand what I'm saying? The work of the gospel is calling a person to repent of their sins and be made righteous, but it's done wrapped in compassion so our goal as we pray for revival and as we encourage you to reach out and to become a soul winner yourself, we're not trying to make denominationalists. We're not trying to make people into Christians who just go to church on Sunday and read their Bible. What we're after is for people to have that personal encounter with Jesus to really be born again and given a new life. And that's why we're saying that there is a lot of flexibility in what the discipleship of that person looks like. And as you read through the New Testament, you see very often all of the apostles speaking of the converts as their children. And they refer to themselves as the father or as the mother of those children. 
And so the model we have is a loving family unit and not just trying to get someone to make a commitment to go to a certain meeting on certain days of the week. It's loving other people with the gospel of Jesus. So we'll continue with the story of Bibi. So Sarah, in continuing about the houses, she says, the houses are like a family. It's important to have the relationships right inside before we take in more people. She was right, too. While I was desperate to bring people into the houses as soon as they became Christians, her duty was to protect the family members. If I recklessly poured people in, the whole situation would become as chaotic as it had been before we had the houses of Stephen. And this speaks very much about the importance of having those safe boundaries to protect the church and to protect new converts. When they refused to take Bibi, I had to go back and tell him that there was no room. We met at Ah Wong's noodle stall in the Lung Kong Road. You could get marvelous little wonton dumplings and noodles there. Bibi raged at me in desperation when he heard the news, and I had to answer, Just for a moment, Bibi, take your eyes off yourself, and forget that our house is going to save you. Just look up at the sky. It's not a very beautiful sky down here, but just look up and imagine the one who made all of that sky, the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the birds. He's the one who makes even the things like drops in buckets. And he stretches out the heavens like a tent and makes the mountains and the animals and the flowers. That one actually chooses that his spirit should live in us. He chooses that his spirit should live in us, rotten as we are. Why? Because Jesus left all that glory and walked through the miserable walled city and got beaten up and killed and died and rose again so that we could have his spirit. Isn't it amazing? that the spirit of the God who created the whole world should actually come to live in us. Just take your eyes off our house saving you. Instead, imagine the wonder of our God. I left Bibi there at the noodle stall praying so that I could talk with another addict who was pressuring me to be admitted to the houses. Half an hour later, when I came back to Bibi, I found him eyes shut with a soft smile on his face. I called to him, but he didn't reply. I called more loudly, but still there was no answer. At my third shout, Bibi very reluctantly opened his eyes. What did you see? I asked him. He told me that he had seen Jesus. At least he thought it was Jesus, wearing a long white robe. He'd been on a mountain, and Jesus had come toward him with his hand held out. He said to Bibi, Bibi, will you follow me? Bibi replied, Well, yes, Lord, who else? Jesus had taken him by the hand and led him along the most beautiful path. I can hardly describe it. Bibi searched for words in his meager experience. It was so beautiful. There were lovely flowers and birds, and it was very sweet-smelling. It was the most lovely place. We walked along this path, and I heard you calling, but I didn't want to come back. I heard you calling again, and I still didn't want to come back. From that time on, instead of believing that our house was going to save him now that he was a Christian, he looked up again at his creator to do so. 
his peaked face was illuminated by a glow. Just one day later, there was room for him in our third house, and he stayed for two years. He became one of the best boys we had, never difficult even when he was coming off drugs, which he did without so much as a headache. He simply got up and lived normally all through the withdrawal process. I love this story because Jesus very much did want this young man in the house, but he had to reveal himself to him with this vision so that he would be changed enough to be safely admitted into the house. And we praise God for this story. Bibi's family called Jean and Rick, saying that Bibi's father was ready to die, so Bibi went to see him in the hospital. When he arrived, his father, who had come off opium himself and become a believer, said simply, Now that Jesus has made my sons good, I'm ready to go to heaven. He kissed both his sons a tender farewell. But instead of dying, he was healed as his sons prayed for him. <laughs> and a week later, he was discharged. Now that I was free of the need to be a homemaker because there were several of us working together at Stephen, I could go back into the streets. So many of the addicts passed on the word that people came from areas all over the colony asking for help. A converted policeman gave me a two-way radio so that I could be reached any time or at any place, and I found myself more and more involved in the courts and prisons where so many of the boys were shocked into facing their problems. One day I attended a trial in the Causeway Bay. As I was walking out after the case, I heard a cry behind me. Poon, I'm framed. Help me. Help me. I looked around to see the next defendant being led into the dock. He was a stranger to me. I could see the desperation of his dirt-streaked face. It was very cool, air-conditioned courtroom, and he was standing in the cotton shorts and, and shirt he'd been arrested in. The boy was wildly calling to me as the magistrate came into the courtroom to start the case. I had no means of knowing whether he spoke the truth or not, and no right to speak in court even if I had known. However, this unimpressive boy was about to go into battle alone, and there was no legal aid offered in the magistrate's court at that time. I stood up with an inspiration. Your Honor, I said, I'm not familiar with the defendant, but I think it possible that he has not had reasonable access to legal representation. Could you remand this case so that inquiries can be made on his behalf? The magistrate raised his eyebrows. This was an unusual request coming from a layperson. He turned to the defendant, shivering in the dock. Do you wish to be represented, he asked. Yes, replied the boy, but I've not been allowed to make a telephone call since my arrest, so none of my family knows that I'm here. The magistrate remanded the case for one day and I went down to the police cell below the court to talk to the boy. In the two minutes allowed me, I learned that his nickname was Crazy Boy Chong. 
and that he knew of the th- he knew of me through his Chaiwan brothers. He was shaking violently, and his stale sweat was sour. His eyes were red and running. He sniffed constantly. I had one minute left. Listen to me, I said. I have no time to tell you about Jesus, but if you will call on his name, he will hear you and save you. He is God. Under the astonished gaze of the prison guard, his withdrawal symptoms immediately vanished, and his face relaxed. When I saw him the next day, he was still dressed in the dirty shorts and shirt, but his face was clear and happy. I called upon Jesus and now feel quite different, he said. He was found guilty of the charges laid against him, and he went to prison briefly. Shortly after coming out, he was arrested again, and this time he telephoned me from the police station. I went down to see him with an excellent young solicitor who sometimes helped us. He'd been arrested on a charge of attempting to break into several cars in the Shekwan district. According to him, the story was quite untrue. He claimed that he'd actually been watching a pornographic film called Legends of Lust several miles away. After the movie finished, he had boarded a 14-man bus for Chaiwan, but was stopped on the way by two detectives who asked him to alight from the van and talk. They asked him to help them find another triad. Drove him in a private car to a cinema looking for the triad. When they could not locate him, he was taken to the police station and booked on the attempted robbery charge after signing some kind of incriminating statement in the police notebook. You know, I'm, I'm astonished by this story. We've made it so complicated. You have to believe these things and you have to do this and you have to do that. No, you have to call on the name of Jesus. You have to call on the name of Jesus and allow him to take charge. Here's this young man. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit and delivered from his drug addiction, but he goes and watches a pornographic film, Legends of Lust. He doesn't know yet he's not supposed to go watch Legends of Lust. He's just come into the fold of Jesus. And now the Holy Spirit's going to begin to teach him what he's to do and what he's not to do. Have you made it so complicated that you can't just call on the name of Jesus? Are you willing to humble your heart today? Are you willing to call on the name of Jesus? His name is above all names. And you don't have to be righteous to call on his name. You just have to be willing to surrender your life and recognize you can't do it. You can't make it yourself. It's impossible. And so now all you need to do is call on the name of Jesus and he will meet you. And he'll send his Holy Spirit and he'll break the bondage. He'll set you free. Do you understand? We've been so 
formal and casual at the same time about Jesus. He is real. His Holy Spirit is real. He cares about you. Have you become cynical and hard? Are you willing to lay that down and just call today on the name of Jesus? Nearly every time this man had been arrested, he'd yelled frame. He, like many other boys, claimed to have been beaten up to make a confession. I discovered that a good number of them were not beaten up, but they were so sure of the inevitability of the beating that they convinced themselves that it has good as taken place and signed statements incriminating themselves. A high proportion of defended cases contained no trial, no evidence. Many defendants were convicted solely on the strength of his forced confession in a police notebook without witnesses, exhibit, exhibits, or corroborative evidence. David the solicitor, as I decided to do some investigation, David was willing to defend him without fee, provided he was convinced of his innocence, so he wrote to the police for the registration numbers of the cars. I went looking for devil, but found that he'd just been arrested too. However, I found the friend in Taiwan who had been outside the cinema with the detectives looking for devil. He remembered the time and the date. It was three hours before the official time. While I made these inquiries, the young man was still in prison on remand and had no opportunity to contact his friends. I was convinced that he was telling the truth as their testimonies were identical. When we got the vehicle registration numbers, we took a, text, a taxi to Shaiko, where, the little, where there lived a boy who owned one of the cars involved in the alleged crime. He worked in a button factory. So we chased back, located the buttonholer, and asked him where he usually parked his car. Usually in the parking lot there, he said, but on the date of the crime it had not been there. Now we had a case, now we had a witness. All this fuss over such a minor case was unusual, and the Attorney General's department was alerted. They sent a counsel to conduct the prosecution. Usually the magistrate's courts, a police inspector, fulfilled this function. During a break in the case, the prosecuting counsel asked to speak with me. I had noticed him becoming more and more tense in the morning proceedings as it crawled along. He was extremely annoyed at the detailed cross-examination by the defense and kept looking at his watch. Why are you two going to so much trouble for such a minor case, he asked. We should have disposed of it by now. As it is, we'll have to continue into the afternoon in such a small matter. I knew that I should not discuss this case, but I said, shouldn't one present the best case possible in the interests of the defendant? Yes, but why waste time on such a case at all? He was very upset at spending his valuable time on a trivial affair. Because I believe the defendant is innocent, I said. He looked at me astounded. That man has a record of a dozen or so convic convictions. Didn't you know? 
Yes, I know, but we're talking about today's charges. I'm sure he didn't commit the crime. Well, my dear, said the barrister, patronizing me, I've been in Hong Kong for six months now. This was one of the few cases I was involved with in which the defendant was found not guilty. But as a rider, the magistrate also handed a bouquet to the police, saying that they had done an excellent job, and the fact that the accused had been acquitted reflected in no way adversely on their testimony. So I was lauded. Praying in the cells after our first meeting had taught him that Jesus was alive. But he had yet to learn the way to be his disciple was not going to be seeing legends of lust. Do you get it? We have about five minutes left in the broadcast. Have you caught it? Jesus cares. He cares about the truth. He cares about the truth in your life. And he cares about what's happening to you. And he wants you to be on fire, ignited with love and compassion and mercy for the lost. But first he wants you to turn away from all darkness and be filled with his spirit. We talk a lot on this broadcast about coming into the baptism of power. We need that baptism. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at the lost, we look at men and women as we share the gospel with them and we recognize our lack of power. We recognize the power of Jesus. We want Jesus. We want his fullness to win the lost, to save the dying, to heal the sick, to release the captive. We want that for you. Lord Jesus, we come today pleading that you would turn the heart of every listener toward yourself, that by your spirit you would call them one more time and give them the opportunity to choose to radically follow you and lay down everything that is not of your spirit. Lord, there are those today who need your healing power, both in their body, in their soul, in their finances. Lord, some are filled with rage and anger, and others are broken and hopeless. But Lord, you're everything. And we love you. Because you first loved us. Lord, we expect the miracle of men and women being brought into full revival power in Washington, D.C. Our precious listeners, Lord, would you move in power right now in their hearts, stir up hope and expectancy and absolute commitment to you Jesus for you're the one who saves us thank you Lord I pray in your name amen we've been reading from Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger
and you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel, where Alexandra and Ray Greenlee, and we're very happy you've joined us today. You can reach us by writing to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodridge, Virginia, 22195. That address again, the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also reach us by visiting our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this message again, as well as past messages. You can also make a donation, or send us an email, or give us a call on the phone. All that information is on our website, nationalprayerchapel.com. And if you'd like to be a part of the house church that meets at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning, call me, 703-489-1785. That's 703-489-1785. Now, you can probably guess we're earnestly praying for the resources to pay for October. This is a month that's huge. It's almost $4,000. We can't do it, but Jesus can. We're trusting him to move in your heart. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.